This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Every month, we ask a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Today, we'll hear a John O'Hara story from 1943 called Graven Image. Do you keep track of things like that? Certainly, said the undersecretary. I know every goddamn club in this country. I had ample time to study them all then, you recall, objectively, from the outside. Graven Image was selected by E.L. Doctorow, whose most recent book of fiction is The March. It's a novel about Sherman's march through the South during the Civil War. Doctorow has been publishing short stories in The New Yorker since 1997. Edgar, uh, John O'Hara was very successful in his day, but he hasn't really become a household name like his contemporaries Fitzgerald, Hemingway, or Faulkner. Why do you think he's somewhat fallen out of fashion? I'm not sure. He, he had an interesting career. He was well-known as a short story writer and then uh, drifted into writing a very popular best-selling novels. I'm not sure they were his best work. He seemed to shine in the short story form, the novella form. It's always hard to tell why someone who apparently deserves uh, rewards doesn't get them. There was a gap of about 11 years from 1949 to 1960 when he didn't publish any stories in the magazine, although he published large numbers before and after. And apparently it was because the magazine gave him a poor review of one of his novels. Uh, and he was the type to hold a grudge. Unlike but, most of us, you mean. <laughs> but of all those stories, what was it that made you pick Graven Image to read today? Well, this touches on uh, his major theme, uh, one of his obsessive preoccupations with class, social status. It's an ambiguous story. It's very compact. And as with many of his stories, it's classic in its form, where the entry point is very close to the denouement. And actually, the entire story covers a conversation over a lunch table. So it's rather economical and pregnant with meaning and possible interpretations. The story takes us sort of into the nexus of Washington politics. It takes us into Harvard social clubs and very much into the kind of social anxiety that O'Hara was so good at writing about. Is there anything else that people will need to know before they hear the story? Well, that it presumably describes a... uh, period of time during the Roosevelt administration, I think, when the uh, sort of Republican upper class was felt fairly excluded from the action. There's a reference to the boss, and I believe that means the president. Yeah. There's a possible implication of, uh, in terms of this class situation, of something anti-Semitic going on, I think. That's, Mm -hmm. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. Yeah. We'll talk more about the story after we hear it. Now here's E.L. Doctorow reading Graven Image by John O'Hara. The car turned in at the brief crescent-shaped drive and waited until the two cabs ahead had pulled away. The car pulled up. The doorman opened the rear door. A little man got out. The little man nodded pleasantly enough to the doorman and said, Wait, to the chauffeur. Will the undersecretary be here long? asked the doorman. Why? said the little man. Because if you were going to be here, sir, only a short while, I'd let your man leave the car here at the head of the rank. Leave it there anyway, said the undersecretary. Very good, sir, said the doorman. He saluted and frowned only a little as he watched the undersecretary enter the hotel. Well, the doorman said to himself, it was a long time coming. 
It took him longer than most, but sooner or later, all of them. He opened the door of the next car, addressed a colonel and a major by their titles, and never did anything about the undersecretary's car, which pulled ahead and parked in the drive. The undersecretary was spoken to many times in his progress to the main dining room. One man said, What's your hurry, Joe? To which the undersecretary smiled and nodded. He was called Mr. Secretary most often, in some cases easily, by the old Washington hands, but more frequently with that embarrassment which Americans feel in using titles. As he passed through the lobby, the undersecretary himself addressed by their White House nicknames two gentlemen whom he had to acknowledge to be closer to the boss. And bustling all the while, he made his way to the dining room, which was already packed. At the entrance, he stopped short and frowned. The man he was to meet, Charles Browning, was chatting in French very amiably with the maître d'hôtel. Browning and the undersecretary had been at Harvard at the same time. The undersecretary went up to him. Sorry if I'm a little late, he said, and held out his hand, at the same time looking at his pocket watch. Not so very, though. How are you, Charles? Fred, you got my message? Yes, sir, said the maître d'hôtel. I put you at a nice table all the way back to the right. He meanwhile had wigwagged a captain who stood by to lead the undersecretary and his guest to table 12. Nice to have seen you again, Mr. Browning. Hope you come to see us again while you're in Washington. Always a pleasure, sir. Always a pleasure, Fred, said Browning. He turned to the undersecretary. Well, shall we? Yeah, let's sit down, said the undersecretary. The captain led the way, followed by the undersecretary, walking slightly sideways. Browning, making one step to two of the undersecretaries, brought up the rear. When they were seated, the undersecretary took the menu out of the captain's hands. Let's order right away so I don't have to look up and talk to those two son-of-a-bitches. I guess you know which two I mean. Browning looked from right to left, as anyone does on just sitting down in a restaurant. He nodded and said, Yes, I think I know. You mean the senators? That's right, said the undersecretary. I'm not going to have a cocktail, but you can. I'll have the lobster, peas, shoestring potatoes. You want a cocktail? I don't think so. I'll take whatever you're having. Okay, waiter, said the undersecretary. Yes, sir, said the captain, and went away. Well, Charles, I was pretty surprised to hear from you. Yes, Browning said. I should imagine so. And by the way, I want to thank you for answering my letter so promptly. I know how rushed you fellows must be, and I thought, as I said in my letter, at your convenience. Oh, well, frankly, there wasn't any use in putting you off. I mean, till next week or two weeks from now or anything like that. I could just as easily see you today as a month from now. Maybe easier. I don't know where I'll be likely to be a month from now, in more ways than one. I may be taking the clipper to London, and then, of course, I may be out of my can, coming to New York and asking you for a job. I take it that's what you wanted to see me about? Oh, uh, yes, and with hat in hand. Oh, no, I can't see you waiting with hat in hand, not for anybody, not even for the boss. Browning laughed. What are you laughing at, asked the undersecretary. Well, you know how I feel about him, so I'd say least of all the boss. Well, you've got plenty of company in this goddamn town, but why'd you come to me then? Why didn't you go to one of your Union League or Junior League or whatever the hell it is, pals? There, that big jerk over there with the blue suit and the striped tie, for instance. 
Browning looked over at the big jerk with the blue suit and the striped tie, and at that moment their eyes met and the two men nodded. You know him, said the undersecretary. Sure, I know him, but that doesn't say I approve of him. Well, at least that's something, and I notice he knows you. Oh, I've been to his house. I think he's been to our house when my father was alive, and naturally I've seen him around New York all my life. Naturally, naturally. Then why didn't you go to him? That's easy. I wouldn't like to ask him for anything. I don't approve of the man, at least as a politician, so I couldn't go to him and ask him a favor. But on the other hand, you're not one of our team, but yet you'd ask me a favor. I don't get it. Oh, yes, you do, Joe. You didn't get where you are by not being able to understand a simple thing like that. Reluctantly, and quite obviously it was reluctantly, the undersecretary grinned. All right, I was baiting you. I know you were, but I expected it. I have it coming to me. I've always been against you fellows. I wasn't even for you in 1932, and that's a hell of an admission. But it's the truth. But that's water under the bridge, or isn't it? The waiter interrupted with the food, and they did not speak until he had gone away. You were asking me if it isn't water under the bridge. Why should it be? The obvious reason, said Browning. My country, tis of thee. Exactly. Isn't that enough? It isn't for your racket club pal over there. You keep track of things like that? Certainly, said the undersecretary. I know every goddamn club in this country, beginning back about 23 years ago. I had ample time to study them all then, you recall, objectively, from the outside. By the way, I notice you wear a wristwatch. What happens to the little animal? Browning put his hand in his pocket and brought out a small bunch of keys. He held the chain so that the undersecretary could see, suspended from it, a small golden pig. I still carry it, he said. They tell me a lot of you fellows put them back in your pockets about five years ago when one of the illustrious brethren closed his downtown office and moved up to Ossining. Oh, probably, Browning said. But quite a few fellows, I believe, that hadn't been wearing them took to wearing them again out of simple loyalty. Listen, Joe, are we talking like grown men? Are you sore at the pork? Do you think you'd have enjoyed being a member of it? If being sore at it was even partly responsible for getting you where you are, then I think you ought to be a little grateful to it. You showed the bastards. Okay, you showed them. Us. If you hadn't been so sore at the Porcellian so-and-sos, you might have turned into just another lawyer. My wife gives me that sometimes. There, do you see, Browning said. Now then, how about the job? The undersecretary smiled. There's no getting away from it. You guys have got something. Okay, what are you interested in? Of course, I make no promises, and I don't even know if what you're interested in is something I can help you with. That's a chance I'll take. That's why I came to Washington on just that chance. But it's my guess you can help me. Browning went on to tell the undersecretary about the job he wanted. He told him why he thought he was qualified for it, and the undersecretary nodded. Browning told him everything he knew about the job, and the undersecretary continued to nod silently. By the end of Browning's recital, the undersecretary had become thoughtful. He told Browning that he thought there might be some little trouble with a certain character, 
but that that character could be handled, because the real say-so, the green light, was controlled by a man who was a friend of the undersecretary's, and the undersecretary could almost say at this moment that the matter could be arranged. At this, Browning grinned. By God, Joe, we've got to have a drink on this. This is the best news since... He summoned the waiter. The undersecretary yielded and ordered a cordial. Browning ordered a scotch. The drinks were brought. Browning said, About the job, I'm not going to say another word, but just keep my fingers crossed. But as to you, Joe, you're the best. I drink to you. The two men drank, the undersecretary sipping at his, Browning taking half of his. Browning looked at the drink in his hand. You know, I was a little afraid. That other stuff, the club stuff. Yes, said the undersecretary. I don't know why fellows like you, you never would have made it in a thousand years, but then, without looking up, he knew everything had collapsed. But I've said exactly the wrong thing, haven't I? That's right, Browning, said the undersecretary. You said exactly the wrong thing. I've got to be going. He stood up and turned and went out, all dignity. That was E.L. Doctorow, reading Graven Image by John O'Hara, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1943. It's included in the Modern Library Classics paperback edition of O'Hara's Selected Stories. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Edgar Graven Image is a story about insiderness. It's about the little man being excluded from the clubs, being excluded from the club of big men, so to speak. At the same time, it's something of a defense of the little man. Who are we meant to be sympathizing with? Well, that's what's so interesting about the story, exactly what is going on, what happens. At the end of the story, seemingly Browning, the sort of upper-class insider, has blown it after he's had a drink. (laughs) But then he's delivered the knife to the ribs of the undersecretary. Fellows like you. um, Giving him just the kind of message of exclusion that this man has suffered from all his life. So they both leave this encounter having lost. And that's where the ambiguity comes in. You don't know whether Browning did this deliberately or sort of set the guy up or couldn't help himself, that he had to express this 
degree of arrogance or contempt. And the possibility exists that O'Hara himself couldn't decide exactly who he was for in this story. We start out not thinking very much of the undersecretaries called the little man, but as it goes on, we begin to understand the power of exclusion in a social world and begin to be sympathetic with him. The undersecretary, you notice, has no name in the story, which is another way of indicating O'Hara's view of his status. He's also the undersecretary. Yes, he's the undersecretary. Not the secretary. There are quite a few undersecretaries in in any given administration. Yeah. In the Roosevelt administration, he shocked a lot of people by having economists, Jewish intellectuals uh, from the world of academia in his administration. Mm -hmm. And I think O'Hara was alluding to that somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, you sense that there's a lot of O'Hara in the undersecretary. You know, O'Hara was a little man. He was just over five feet tall. Was he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he was somewhat socially outcast because he was Irish Catholic. His family was was somewhat well off. His father was a doctor, but he was impoverished later, and he didn't obviously didn't go to Harvard. So in a sense, I feel as though the undersecretary is, is his revenge on the people who look down on him, some kind of proof that the little man can also rise through the ranks. There was an edge to him and an anger that comes through in a piece like this, a very short piece. It was George Bernard Shaw who said he gave all his best lines to the villain mm-hmm. <laughs> of his plays, the one one he didn't agree with. And maybe O'Hara is doing that here, but there's a definite rage, I think, yeah. <laughs> that propels the story. What's interesting also about the idea of him not naming the undersecretary is that he could sort of be anything. He could be Jewish, he could be Catholic, he could be poor Irish like O'Hara. It's sort of a generalized ethnic uh, problem. Yeah. Well, I was thinking a little more specifically of Mm -hmm. the Roosevelt administration, Mm -hmm. the cabinet. I mean, Henry Morgenthau was Mm -hmm. secretary of the treasury and so on. And Roosevelt broke a lot of rules. Things were so bad that he, a member of the club, realized he needed the best minds he could find. Mm-hmm. And uh, regardless of their social standing or their religious background, uh, graven image. What do you think that refers what, to? What that does title? that refer to? Which, <laughs> That's my question for you. <laughs> oh, uh, maybe it's the little golden pig that uh, yeah. Browning pulls out of his pocket, signifying his membership. Mm-hmm. A graven image, of course, biblical yeah. reference is clear there that uh, must not worship golden calves, golden pigs, mm-hmm. <laughs> anything <laughs> of that sort. So yeah. um, it's almost th- that to me is another indication that if there is a kind of biblical quality yeah. to that title, yeah. that the undersecretary is probably Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like a riddle. The moral is hidden in the title. Isn't it interesting how, I don't know how many words this thing is, it's very short, how much you can derive from it the more you think about it, Mm -hmm. which which is a sign of of a good piece, I think. E.L. Doctorow's latest book is called Creationists, Selected Essays, 1993 to 2006, published by Random House. 
His most recent story, Wakefield, is in the January 14th issue of the magazine and on our website, newyorker.com. You can listen to previous fiction podcasts as well as other free New Yorker podcasts. Just go to the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.